This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to another episode of Violent Ends. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter, late to the party as always. So we are winding down season five. There's just a few episodes left. There's today, Avi, and then there's the Halloween episode, which I still need your ghost stories for. And then the season finale, which tradition dictates must be about a massacre. So I wanted to sneak in one last time this year a weird, old-timey, crimey story that I found by happenstance in an old newspaper because you guys know how much I love doing these ones. So today, friends, we're going to be talking about Michigan's very own Black Widow, Jane Quinn. Well, that was one of her many, many names. If I were to use all of her names, we'd be calling her Anne Jane Jenny Taylor McDonald Thorpe Quinn Campbell. <laughs> now it just confused us all. So we're going to call her Jane Quinn. Short and sweet. Unlike Jane. Jane was born February 2nd, 1863 in Ontario, Canada to Thomas and Elizabeth Taylor. She was one of 15 children. I have no idea where in that lineup she fit in, but when there are 15 of you, does that really matter anymore? In 1883, when Jane was 20, she married fellow Canadian John McDonald, who was three years her senior. The young couple moved to Michigan and settled in Port Huron, the maritime capital of the Great Lakes, and the hometown of one Thomas Edison, who you may have heard of. Port Huron is a city of just under 30,000, located on the outer thumb knuckle, if you're looking at your hand like a map of Michigan. It is just across the St. Clair River from O Canada, so even though they left the homeland, they didn't go too far. They were just across the river. In 1886, when she was 23, Jane gave birth to her first and only child, a daughter, Pearl. Now, I don't know if the old McDonald's had a farm. I'm so sorry. I had to do it at least one time. But they did have a lot of drama, even before they got married. In July of 1882, so he would have been like 22, John was arrested for being drunk and disorderly on the street. He was offered a $1 fine or 15 days in jail. He chose the jail time as... Rest from the trials and turmoils of this inconstant life, as he put it. So, drama, drama. But Jane loved the drama, apparently, because she married him and had a baby with him anyway. At some point, the McDonald family moved to Jackson, Michigan, which is pretty far inland, like nearly 150 miles further inland. Toto, we're not in almost Canada anymore here. So the next time I find the McDonald's in the news was in 1901. John would have been 41 and Jane would have been 38 and then their daughter Pearl would have been 15. In April of 1901, John was arrested for being intoxicated on the courthouse lawn. 
He was sentenced to a $5 fine, which would have been close to $200 in today's money, or 10 days in jail. There was no word that time on which fate he chose or why. A month later, John upgraded from town drunkard to town madman. On Wednesday, May 22nd, residents on Cherry Street in Port Huron were alarmed when they heard screams for help and shouts of murder at the home of one Otto Clammer. Otto was married to one of Jane's 47 sisters. So according to the Port Huron Daily Herald, John showed up at the Clammer home completely sauced, upset over some family quarrel, and he threatened to kill his sister-in-law, Annie. Not just with words, but with a big old knife that he pulled out and started swinging at her. She screamed for help, started yelling murder, Otto came running, and John turned his attention onto his brother-in-law, but not before knocking Annie out. John sliced and slashed at Otto, who wrestled the knife away from him, at which point John proceeded to pummel his brother-in-law and nearly chewed off one of his fingers. The fuck? John was arrested and he was sentenced to 65 days in jail or a $15 fine, which would be over $500 in today's money. No word on what fate John chose this time either, but let's, let's math it a little bit. So he was sentenced on May 29th. If he did the 65 days, that's going to put us at August 2nd that he would have been released. And a month and a half after that, he was dead. On September 23rd, 1901, Dr. J.H. DeMay was called to the McDonald home where he found 41-year-old John in bed, barely conscious, his pulse weak. Jane told the doctor that John had been drinking heavily that day and then began convulsing. The doctor gave John some medicine and he left the home to go see another patient, promising to stop back by on his return trip. When he did return a few hours later, John was dead. According to Jane, he'd had another convulsion shortly after the doctor left and he died. With no post-mortem exam, the doctor listed alcoholism as the cause of death on John's death certificate and he was buried in an unmarked grave. Given John's reputation, no one in town thought twice about his death by alcoholism at such a young age. What they did raise their eyebrows at was when his wife of 18 years, the mother of his child, his widow of 35 days, got remarried. 35 days after he died, she got remarried. On October 28, 1901, 38-year-old Jane married a twice-widowed farmer, 23 years her senior, by the name of Warren Thorpe. Jane was just two years older than Warren's eldest son, Anthony. Warren's first wife, Mary, the mother of his children, died in 1879. He remarried the following year. His second wife, Georgie, was 16 years his junior, Those two had no children together, but she helped him raise his three sons by Mary. These two were married for 19 years before Georgie died of blood poisoning in 1899 at the age of 42. So by the age of 58, Warren had outlived two wives, 
raised three sons, and built a successful farming and dairy empire from the ground up. And then he met Jane. Real quick, I do want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and for good reason. They deliver farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and delicious recipes right to your door. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Look, we all know that HelloFresh takes the hassle out of mealtime prep, but did you also know it can save you money? HelloFresh is actually cheaper than grocery shopping and 25% less expensive than takeout. Saving money and time? Sign me up. One thing about HelloFresh, they are constantly changing up their menu options, so your dinner menu will never get stale. With add-ons from the HelloFresh market, you can upgrade your meals with desserts and appetizers right now from the fall flavors lineup, and so they've got things like apple cider cake with caramel sauce and barbecue pulled pork nachos. Just like, I am so hungry right now. I'm definitely going to have to try that apple cider cake. While there's a lot to love about HelloFresh, my favorite part is that it takes the guesswork out of mealtime. There's no arguing over where to go or pouring over recipes and then picking one that may not work out in the end. HelloFresh figures it all out for me, and I love that for me personally. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50VioletEnds and use code 50 violent ends for 50% off plus free shipping. That is 50% off plus free shipping at hellofresh.com slash 50-50-violent ends, all one word. So 50-violent ends, all one word, no spaces, no dashes. Promo code 50-violent ends. And be sure to tell them I sent you. Okay, back to husband number two. So, Jane and Warren got married real quick within weeks of Jane's first husband's death. Jane, her 15-year-old daughter, and her feeble old mother, Elizabeth Taylor, who was only 64, by the way, six years older than Jane's new husband, but she was categorized as like this old feeble woman that everyone needed to take care of. They moved out to the Thorpe Farm in Blackman Township. Uh, Blackman Township is a suburb of Jackson, just like six miles outside of town is where the farm was located. But if Jane thought that Warren was going to be her ticket to a happy life after nearly two decades married to an abusive drunk, she was dead wrong. Warren was also abusive. He was controlling. He was jealous. He made Jane do a man's work on the farm, and he was so abusive to her and her mother, that her mother actually left the farm and went to live with one of her 72 other children. Jane frequently visited her mother in Jackson, some six miles away, which resulted in Warren accusing her of being unfaithful. Things got so bad that Jane and Pearl left the farm in January of 1903, so just like a year into their marriage-ish. I don't know. I can't math today. I'm tired. Um, So they left the farm, and they returned to their family in Jackson, and Jane planned to seek a divorce. But Warren went crawling after her, full of apologies, 
promised her a better life. He was going to do better. Their future was going to be great. Yada, yada, yada. Like we've all seen this before, right? And Jane, who didn't really have the financial means to take care of her daughter or her mother, let alone herself, went back. On January 20th, 1903, so kind of right as this was all happening, 66-year-old Elizabeth Taylor was found dead in her bed at 616 East Main Street in Jackson. A newspaper article stated that the mother of 15 had outlived over half of her children. Only seven survived her. Among them was her daughter Jane. While Elizabeth's neat and tidy death was reminiscent of the way Jane's first husband died, just laying in bed and... Uh, no one suspected foul play at the time. But just a few months later, tragedy would strike Jane's family once again. June 14th, 1903 was a Sunday. It was a quiet morning on the Thorpe farm. 40-year-old Jane was out feeding the chickens. 17-year-old Pearl was hanging the laundry out to dry. Two hired hands were working in the barn, so there's a lot going on, a lot of people on the property. And 62-year-old Warren was in his bedroom getting dressed for church when a shot rang out. Jane and Pearl heard it and ran toward the house to see what had happened. The hired hands, who were working in the same part of the yard, didn't hear anything, but they did see the women running toward the house. Inside, Warren, still only half-dressed for church, lay dead from a bullet wound to the head. Jane told authorities that her husband of less than two years had been horribly depressed and his death was ruled a suicide. But when Jane filed paperwork to take control of his estate, Warren's sons were like, uh, nope, a hold up. A, this is our father. This is our inheritance. He was married to this woman for like 10 seconds. She and her teenage daughter do not get his estate. And two... We think she murdered him anyway. At the request of Warren Thorpe's sons, his body was exhumed for further examination, and an inquest was opened. Two weeks later, Jane and her daughter Pearl were charged with murder. The prosecutor claimed that the gun that was used to kill Warren had gone missing when Jane left him for that brief period of time back in January while they were separated. And Warren had never seen it again, so for it to turn up as the weapon that took his life was super suspicious. Additionally, Jane had been overheard just the night before telling a friend that Warren wouldn't be able to shout and curse at her much longer following an argument that the two of them had. And according to Warren's sons, he had called his eldest that morning to tell him that he was coming over to sign his farm and his dairy business and his entire empire over to him. So he had made arrangements to go meet with his son and sign his whole estate over to him the day that he died. The most damning evidence, though, was found at the crime scene. Warren was found half-dressed. He'd been sitting in a chair in the process of lacing up his shoes when he was shot. Who stops in the middle of tying their shoes to shoot themselves in the head. The angle at which the bullet went through Warren's head and then the bedroom window behind him supported the theory that he was actively bent over tying his shoe when he was shot. 
which again, it makes no sense for him to have shot himself in that moment while in that position. That's just super fucking weird. Later, another bullet hole was found in the closet door frame, and the gun found near Warren's body had two empty chambers, not just one, suggesting that two shots had actually been fired. There were no powder burns or residue on either of his hands or on his head near the bullet wound, which there would have been if he had shot himself. So on Thursday, July 2nd, 1903, a couple weeks after he died, Jane and Pearl were charged with open murder. Less than three weeks later, on July 21st, all charges against them were dismissed due to lack of evidence. A judge stated that the prosecutor had proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Warren Thorpe was murdered, but had no evidence to suggest that Jane or Pearl were behind it. To the contrary, multiple witnesses placed the two women outside the house when Warren was killed. So with the murder charges dropped, only the issue of Warren's estate remained before Jane could move on to the next one. The Thorpe boys wound up buying her out of the farm with nearly $2,000 in cash and property, which would be about $70,000 today. So she made a good little chunk of change on that one. Her pockets stuffed with cash and a growing pile of dead bodies in her wake, two husbands and her own mother, and Jane Jenny Taylor McDonald Thorpe fled to the west side of Michigan and then left the state altogether. And this is where we find the Quinn in today's story. On January 24th, 1906, Jane married her third husband, John Quinn, in Kalamazoo. You guys know that I love a weird coincidence, and there are a couple weird ones here. Husband number three had the same name as husband number one and was a widower with three adult children, just like husband number two. John Quinn was born in 1857 in Indiana, and he was only six years Jane's senior, so not old enough to be her father like husband number two. He and his first wife, Maria, had three children, two boys and a girl, and they lived in Battle Creek your favorite serial city, and mine. Maria died in October of 1905 from pneumonia, and she was buried in Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, along with the Kellogg family and Sojourner Truth, just a little FYI there. At the time of her death, her youngest child was just 13, while the other two were fresh adults. Three months after losing Maria, John found love again. But he might should have waited a little bit longer because he chose super wrong. He married our little Michigan-made black widow, Jane. One would think that a couple marrying at the ages of 48 and 42, respectively, would kind of have their shit figured out, right? Between them, they had raised four children. They had lost three spouses, although Jane never told John about her second husband's husbands, her second husband, for reasons that we're going to find out soon here. And this was the early 1900s. 40 was not the new 30. It was the new 70. So one would think that a seasoned couple like John and Jane would be beyond drama and silly games, but they were not. Our gal Jane, it turns out, was into role play. She liked to play cat burglar, only John wasn't in on the fun. So it wasn't like a sexy cat burglar thing. 
she would just steal his shit and then blame it on burglars, like, several times a year. Shortly after marrying, the couple moved to Chicago, where Jane ran a boarding house and John worked as a conductor on the railroad all the live long day. The couple moved about for a while before settling at 11050 South Michigan Avenue on the city's south side. You guys all know the place. Uh, Today, that location is a Dollar General, according to Google Maps. The oddest misfortunes plagued the Quins. No matter where they moved, their home was burgled every six months or so. Each time John was away from the home, He was a conductor, so it was literally his job to travel. Every time John's watch, specifically his watch, and between $60 and $75 cash, which would be between two grand and $3,500 today, were stolen. So the same exact crime, a stolen watch, stolen cash while John was out of town, just kept happening over and over. And each time, Jane would follow up the robbery with a visit to her daughter in Nebraska. By this point, Pearl was married herself. She actually married her husband, Charles, a month after Jane and John were married. John Quinn was not a stupid man. He knew what was going on. When speaking of the robberies, he would say things like, Oh, I know who the burglar is, all right. And according to family, Jane at least once admitted her transgressions, telling her husband, Yes, I know you think I'm the burglar. I know you think that, and I might as well admit it. What the fuck? These people are so weird. I don't even... What was going on in the early 1900s? Like, weird. November 2nd, 1911 was a Thursday. Jane was 48. John was 54. The couple had been married for going on six years. Their children were all grown and out of the house, raising families of their own. The Quinn house was full of boarders, which meant money, money, money. All was well. Aside from the fact that John and Jane had quarreled violently just days before. According to Jane, John came home loaded one night and he wanted to use one of the rooms in the house for gambling. Jane refused his request, telling him it was dangerous, and he struck her. The next day, a gun belonging to one of their boarders went missing. When the boarder informed Jane that his gun was missing, she asked him not to mention it to John. And then a few days after that, at 4 a.m. on November 2nd, the Quinn House boarders awoke to Jane shouting, The house is robbed and Quinn is shot. The boarders, Charles Carey and his wife Louise, and a man named J.W. Miller, the man whose gun was missing, ran to Jane's aid. They found John lying in bed, a gaping bullet wound in his chest. He was alive, but barely. Jane was covered in blood. Mr. Carey ran for help, returning just moments later with a doctor and two police officers but it was too late to save John Quinn. He died at 4.20 a.m. He'd been shot just once at close range with a 38 caliber revolver, which police found odd as this was an older weapon that not many people carried anymore. Even odder was the fact that this was the exact type of gun that had gone missing from the house a few days earlier. 
odder still was the fact that a quick search of the house resulted in the discovery of said gun wrapped in a cloth behind the bathtub. And not just any cloth either. This cloth was one that Mrs. Carey, one of the boarders, had given Jane to wipe blood off her face. So she had just had the cloth, given it to Jane, and now the cloth was wrapped around the same kind of gun that killed John Quinn and stuffed behind the bathtub, the gun that belonged to their boarder who lost it a few days ago. All like this, she just, it's not even, we don't even require the game of Clue here, right? (laughs) And yet... Jane maintained that a burglar had entered her bedroom through the window. She woke up because she heard like a scuffle, looked over, saw her husband struggling with this stranger. And as she walked over to help him, the gun went off. The burglar shot her husband at point blank range and then jumped out the window and ran off again. Like, come on, Jane. This is not even a good story at all. Before we continue, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's other sponsor. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you sometimes feel like your brain gets in its own way? You're laying in bed at night, your mind racing, thinking about all of the things that you didn't get done today and all of the things that you absolutely have to get done tomorrow, but you know you're going to be useless for all of it because you're too tired because your brain won't shut up and let you sleep. Good news. Therapy can help you figure out how to quiet those racing thoughts so that you can work for yourself instead of against yourself. Learning how to set boundaries and reasonable expectations for yourself are important life skills, and therapy can help you get that sorted so that you can be the very best version of yourself. If you've been thinking of trying therapy but find the entire process daunting, Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So it's something that is meant to be a help to you, not just another thing to add to your plate that needs to get done. Because who needs that, right? Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash violentends today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash violent ends, all one word. And be sure to tell him I sent you. So Jane was arrested for her husband's murder, of course. Police knew they had their killer, and this was before they even knew who she was. When questioned about her history, Jane told authorities only about her first husband, James McDonald, who'd died of alcohol poisoning and left her a widow. It wasn't until Chicago PD contacted the authorities back in Jackson that they found out about Jane's second husband, who had been shot to death just like her third husband. Uh, And by the way, Jane had been accused of and even arrested for murdering him at one point before being let go. When confronted with, like, that, if your husband has been murdered, it seems like it's pertinent to tell the police that your last husband was murdered and that you were charged with that murder. But Jane, Jane didn't do that. So when she was confronted with this information, she was just like, oh, yeah, okay, there was that. That did happen. 
So she was promptly arrested and she was charged with the murder of John Marshall Quinn, her third husband and her third dead husband. Like that, we're, we're three for three here, Jane. Uh, as this case worked its way through Chicago's legal system, authorities in Michigan reopened their cases into the deaths of John McDonald and Warren Thorpe. Plans were made to exhume John McDonald's body to check for traces of poison. The doctor who had listed alcoholism as the cause of death on the death certificate told detectives that he was sure John's body would test positive for strychnine poisoning. In hindsight, two more dead husbands later, the signs were all there from the beginning. He admitted that he'd made a mistake, one that, if he had caught, could have prevented the deaths of Jane's subsequent husbands. Jane was lodged in the Cook County Jail for six months while she awaited trial. Her trial began in late May of 1912. While their case was largely circumstantial, prosecutors were sure they had a slam dunk. Jane Quinn was just as sure that she would be acquitted. Her trial was short, jury deliberations were even shorter, and on June 1, 1912, the jury foreman stood before a packed courtroom and read the words, We find the defendant, Jane Quinn, not guilty. If you can't believe it, Jane really couldn't believe it. She fainted on the spot, falling into the arms of a deputy. When she came to, she thanked the jury and she said, I knew they would free me. There was nothing else they could do. All my life, I have been a victim of circumstances, and the climax of all my trouble came when I was accused of murder. <laughs> Jane, I'm pretty sure the climax of your trouble was when you started murdering your fucking husbands, but okay. Jane also thanked the jury on behalf of her daughter, who was losing her fight with tuberculosis and was on her deathbed in Nebraska. Jane vowed to return to Michigan with her sister, who had attended her entire trial, and from there she was going to depart post-haste for Nebraska to be with her daughter as she died. This, of course, was another of Jane's many lies, because Pearl did not die in 1912. She died in 1964, many, many, many years later. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know why she lied about that. Like, they found her not guilty. Why lie and say your daughter's dying? Because she, she wasn't, and you already got away with it. As for our girl Jane... Once she was acquitted of John Quinn's murder, authorities in Michigan gave up on their quest. Like, if they couldn't get her for that one, they had no chance of getting her for the murders of husbands number one and two because there was much less evidence in those cases. Jane went to Nebraska to visit her non-dying daughter. She became a grandma. She settled in Battle Creek. And you know she got married again. In 1929, she married Dougal Duncan Campbell, who went by Scotty. Scotty had lived a pretty tragic life. He and his first wife, Ida, had seven children, only three of whom survived childhood. Scotty was seven years Jane's junior, so she's going in the other direction now. So when they got married, she was 66 and he was 59. Even still... She outlived him. 
just like so many of Jane's other husbands, Scotty died not long after they were married, on May 23, 1931, at the age of 61. How did he die? I have no idea. By then, the world had forgotten about Michigan's very own Black Widow, maybe because two decades had passed, or maybe because she had changed her name again and she was now going by Jenny Campbell, So nobody realized that she had lost another husband, and they'd only been married for like two years. But either way, all I could find was his obituary. So his death was either natural, an accident, or convincingly made to look that way because the death itself didn't make the newspapers just his obituary. Jane lived another 17 years after her fourth husband died. She died just outside of Marshall, Michigan on February 4th, 1948, just two days after her 85th birthday. She is buried at the Mather Voice Cemetery in East Leroy, Michigan, alongside her daughter, Pearl, the only person who was ever truly safe around Jane. And that, friends, is the story of Jane Quinn, Michigan's Black Widow Bride, who apparently was charming as fuck, because I have seen pictures of her. She wasn't that cute to just be marrying all of these men and getting away with murdering them. Like, her first husband died in 1901, and her fourth husband died in 1931. That is 30 years of husband murdering, allegedly. Thank you for joining me today for this wild piece of Michigan history. This might... This might be like the shortest episode that we've done all year. I was just looking back over the catalog and almost every episode this year was close to or over an hour long except for like one of them. And I think this one's going to be shorter than that one. That's okay. That's okay. That's the thing about these really old stories is like there's not a ton out there about them when I'm just digging them up from the newspaper. When I'm just digging them up from the newspaper dregs. Um, so they're they're going to be shorter. And so I don't do them as much anymore. But I should because I love them. I love them. Okay. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Uh, maybe because I can't make it if you guys don't send me your ghost stories. I do have a few, but I need more. I need more. Uh, They can be anonymous if you'd like. We can even like change the names in the story. Just put a little note at the beginning, say, please keep my name anonymous. Please change the names of any, you know, specific locations or people mentioned. And I can do that. I'm a storyteller, right? Just just tell me that that's what you want me to do. Um, You can message your stories to the Violent Ends Facebook page, or you can email violentendspod, all one word, violentendspod at gmail.com. I'll be waiting. Until then, you know what to do. Keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.